0: Hi, Chris Vallotton here. Welcome to my podcast where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and develop you in the art of thinking like God. One of the best ways you can do this is by reading my newest book, Spiritual Intelligence, which is available for purchase everywhere you love to buy your books. Check out my new book, Spiritual Intelligence, and let me know what you think about it. I hope you enjoy this message today. I want to talk about developing healthy, creative communities, a place where people belong. And it's actually, it's part two of a message that I, I brought some, some weeks ago about the power of belonging. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we're going to kind of take up where we ended uh, that last message. And uh, we're just going to read for a few verses here. Um, This is the early church about maybe three years into after the resurrection and the birth of the the early church. And it says this, this is the commentary on the early church. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the outcome was this, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. And all those who would believe were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, This is a really uh, powerful passage about how the early church functioned, that they were in the temple, but they were day by day in houses. So I think that in the midst of this COVID, we've found, uh, we've found our, our place in our homes and it's, it feels to me like the early church in that we are so much of the expressions of faith are happening home to home, house to house. But I wanted you to notice something I uh, brought out uh, a few weeks ago and that is, did you notice it says, that they were devoting themselves, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And I think what's interesting here, although these four uh, pillars are all important, isn't it interesting that breaking of bread and fellowship were actually mentioned before prayer? I don't mean necessarily they were more important, but isn't it powerful that fellowship and breaking of bread was mentioned in the midst of the apostles' teaching and prayer. The word fellowship here is the word koinonia, meaning the exchange of life. And listen to this, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 16 says, do not neglect doing good and sharing, the word sharing there is the same word koinonia, fellowship, for such sacrifices God is pleased with. And I thought it was interesting, I think Bill brought this out many years ago, that fellowship is actually listed as a sacrifice. In other words, I don't always have to feel like it to connect with other people but the power of connection is where they saw signs and wonders and miracles it was in the midst of a community that was connected in which there was birth miracles signs and wonders and it wasn't the kind of sacri- if it wasn't the kind of fellowship it was like oh let's just go hang out and play cards it wasn't just a fun fellowship But it was the kind of koinonia that people sacrificed to be in house to house. It wasn't a convenient fellowship. It was actually a sacrificial fellowship that gave birth to miracles, wonders, and signs. Uh, In Acts 4.32, this is a couple years later, it says, here's the commentary, maybe a year, year and a half later. The congregation of those who believed were with one heart and one soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own but all things were common property to them, and with great power, listen to to the manifestation. They were together, one mind, again, continually devoting themselves to prayer. And by the way, I love this word, continually devoting themselves. You see it in in Acts 2 passage, Acts 4 passage. In other words, they didn't devote themselves once, they had to continually devote themselves. (laughs) Everybody knows that it's not convenient. Real fellowship is not always convenient. It's something you continually devote yourself to. But look at the outcome again. The outcome is they were, they were all together. There was, a, there was a spirit of generosity on the congregation. And here's the outcome look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was on them all. I don't think that you can separate this Koinonia connection and belonging from the works, you know, the signs and wonders and miracles. I think it may have been Bill that first coined this, people come to our school of ministry for the miracles, but they stay for family. I would say that the early church was connected in family, and out of that, miracles were um, taking place. It's so, it's, it so uh, reminds me of our days in Weaverville, which I'll talk about in a minute, but I was taken by this uh, Luke, Luke chapter 2. I was thinking about this morning, actually. I added this this morning. I was thinking about it last night how they did, did you ever notice that joseph and mary lost the savior of the world they literally lost him for three days <laughs> like they they're 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 going to jerusalem and i don't know how it happened exactly but chapter 2 of luke uh tells a story verse 41 on it says that they they thought jesus was like in the next caravan <laughs> and they go back there and he's not there and they start looking for him and it takes them three days to find the savior of the world. And finally they, they end up in the, you know, they go back to Jerusalem and they find him in the temple and, and Mary's like, why did you treat us like this? And he goes, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? But here's the point to me, it takes a village to raise a child. And it shows us even in the early days before the apostles were meeting in house to house, Joseph and Mary had a community in which Jesus was being raised. They literally thought, well, Jesus is just another caravan. Hadn't seen him for two days. It's like, oh, maybe we should find Jesus. He's 12 years old. And and I I just think that it just takes a village to actually see the spirit move in the way that God has designed. I've quoted uh, Robin Williams several times. I just love this quote. People say the worst thing in the world is to be alone. It's really not true, he writes. The worst thing in the world is to be with people who make you feel alone. You know, you, you remember some of what people tell you, you remember more of what people show you, but you always remember how people made you feel. Yeah. I quote again, Brene Brown, who said that we are neurobiologically wired for connection. Connection is what gives meaning to life. Even boys join gangs to feel connected. Blanc, Connection means that uh, there's a sense of belonging. I'm known. I, I, I was going to share about so much of this, maybe we'd call it Bethel 2.0 in the sense that this church has been going for a long time before, well, Bill was here early on, then left and then came back. But I mean, to honor our roots, this church was going for years before any of us got here. And, uh, and then we came down from Weaverville, Bill first, of course, and then. Um, all of us, and our kids, and Brian and Jen, and um, Eric and Candace and uh, all, just all of us, and so many of our team that you wouldn't know that are in the background that are actually making all of this happen. So many of us grew up in this little town of Weaverville, and I was thinking about the whole whole thing about being known. You know, when you're in a small community, nobody has to tell you to have fellowship, especially when you grow up in the mountains, because in order to get through a snowstorm, you have to know your neighbors. You get stuck in the snow, your neighbors come and help you out, your electricity goes off, you have to share things. Hey, do you got some wood? We're out of wood. And there is just a natural kind of connection that happens. You you live in the same town for 20 years, and you walk in a restaurant, and, you know, you the, the, wait, the waiter or the waitress knows what you need. Oh, you want your special? They call you by name. And you don't even realize it, but... There's a deep sense of connection when you are known, when someone knows your name. Often you go into a restaurant and one of the menus is named after somebody in our town. It might even be one of us. And they go, oh, would you like the, you know, would you like the Bill special? Would you like the, and and there is a, I, I, I don't know how to explain it exactly, except for to say we grew up being known. Not only did we know each other, we were in a community that knew us. And I, I, I didn't really think through too much about it until the last year. I'd just been thinking about how that connection, that koinonia, the sense that I belong somewhere, that if I fail, I still belong somewhere, that that actually created the R&D, the research and development. It, it created the, the context, the underlayment, if you will, the safety net for the things that we're sharing today, the things we're doing today, they were actually, they were actually rooted in covenant connection. Sorry. They we were actually rooted in covenant connection where people could fail, but they knew that they were still part of a family. And we, we went through high water, as they say, and hell together. We, we saw in our, I think it was Bill's first or second year, which would have been our third or fourth year, in this little community of Weaverville, way up in the Trinity Alps, we we believed God for a miracle for this for a baby, and actually her name was Faith. And we found out, uh, I think six or eight months after she was born, that she had a brain tumor, and we were just praying and believing God. And we walked through that that with that girl, and that that girl did not live, and that was a big hit for us. And I remember us gathering together the day of that of that little girl's death, and we just. We did connection, we, 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 we suffered together, we had victories together, we loved together, and we, we fought together, and we struggled together, and the outcome of that was a great bond. When it came to Weaverville, when it came from Weaverville here, we, we left everything to be here. Almost everyone in this room left to be here. We didn't have any idea that we would be known or that we would have that we it would be a financial win for us. As a matter of fact, for us, for our family, it was a financial huge loss in the beginning. But and we weren't seeking fame or fortune. I mean, think you're gonna come here seek fame or fortune. But we knew when When Bill and his family moved here, we knew that we were called to be with a people. We didn't know what was going to happen. We were serving the Lord, and we were in business, and we were in some ways doing quite well. But we knew that we were to be with a certain people. I think it's interesting that even Jim Collins coined this idea in his book, Good to Great, that if you get the right people on the right bus in the right seat, they'll end up in the right place. And the truth is, nobody, nobody in this room, nobody, none of our team knew where we were going. We didn't know where we were going. People are like, did you know that the school ministry would grow to thousands? No. I mean, I think that Bill had a vision that it would grow to hundreds. And we didn't come because we were going to have this great success. We came because we were connected. We were part of a family. And out of that, I, I felt the Lord tell me at one point, and I've shared this many times in a much uh, deeper message on the subject, but I felt the Lord say, I want to show the world what happens, what I can grow when, a, when fathers and mothers will make a covenant and stay together the rest of their lives. And I think oftentimes the things that people see on the outside, they often try to duplicate the manifestation, not understanding a bit the connection. It's not that we've never had our struggles because that's all part of family. It's just that in the midst of them, we've stayed connected. I was thinking about how love is the glue that that holds us and has held us together all these years. And you know, we've all read 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind and isn't jealous and doesn't brag and so on and so forth. It was about a month ago, I was thinking about my own impatience. (laughs) Uh, I, I would say the, the my greatest challenge that I'm aware of on a regular basis is my impatience. I, I, I was sharing with Kathy the other day. I was I was trying to share this feeling that I that I live with. It's like have you ever got on the freeway, and you're going somewhere like in and and you've actually started too late in the first place, and you get on the freeway and you're like you you got you got 15 minutes and a 20 minute journey, and the, and the three people in front of you, there's three lanes, and nobody will pass, and they're going 45. And you're like, come on, move! somebody, go, let me pass. I, I, I have grown my whole life feeling like I'm going 70, and everyone else is going 40. And I don't mean in a brain way, I just mean in my energy. And I was thinking about uh, about probably it was about a month ago, I was having one of those moments and I was actually driving. And I was, thinking, and I was thinking, this is such a prophetic declaration over my life. This is how I feel all the time. I'm just aware of it right now. And I felt like the Lord said, you've been praying for patience, but if you pray for love, you'd have patience. Because love is patient." And I was thinking, often we want the manifestation. We don't really realize that it's flowing out of actually the attribute of love. And the Lord said that connection is actually love, and you'll have patience if you fall in love with someone. Isn't it, isn't it amazing how much more patient we are with our children than we are with strangers who do the same thing? And we're like, and they... But then our children do it, and they're like, we have 14 reasons why they did it. It's, it, is, it is a manifestation that we actually love them and love covers a multitude of sins. There's something about this love that transcends, that transcends every other sense of emotion. Uh, Luke, Jesus talks about not just loving your neighbor, but he talks about loving your enemy. This is interesting. I want to just—I'm not going to read the whole thing because I'm going somewhere else with this. But verse 27, Jesus said, "I say, to, I, I say to you." Who here love your enemies, good, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and, and be good to those, and pray for those who mistreat you. And he goes on to talk about if someone hits you on the right cheek, give them your left, someone takes your shirt, give them your coat, and goes on like this. And listen to this verse 32 says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? The interesting thing is the word credit is grace it's actually the same word grace. He says, if you love those who love you, what grace is there to you? <laughs> and if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is there to you? For sinners do the same. If you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit, what grace is there to you? And the point he's making is that when we, when we help people who, who are against us, when we when we actually extend love to people who don't deserve it, that we're not just giving them, uh, not just giving them mercy, we are actually receiving grace. The connotation is, is that if you will make a decision to love enemies, you'll receive grace for it. There is something about connection that is supposed to even transcend our friends. It's like we're supposed to love the hell out of people. There's a particular company, I, I, I don't want to mention who they are, that I've had a relationship for several years, and uh, our relationship has been very rocky. It's a, it's a company that, that, does, uh, that does pro- provides a service. And over the last three years, and we had probably seven years where I, we, we, had, we didn't have good words. We definitely had some harsh things to say to one another, tr- truthful things, but they were not easy to hear for them or me. And, but the last three years, they got a new uh, president and that president has just been doing really good, kind things for me. And uh, at Christmas, he, they, the company sent me uh, a significant sized gift and said, hey, just Merry Christmas. And I was thinking about how I have decided, like, you are not, you don't belong in my world. And for three years, they've said, well, you still belong in ours. And when I got the Christmas card, I actually was in a stack. And Kathy put it on my desk, and I stacked a bunch of stuff on it, and I went to throw that stack away that was in my stack of throwaway stuff. And the card was there. It was unopened. I opened it last night, and it had a significant gift in it. And I stopped, and I thought, you know, this is love. That when I decided we wouldn't have a connection, they decided we still will. And they have reached out for three years, and I have barely reached back. And I was just thinking about grace is coming. They have received grace to love people who didn't love them back. This is... This is the connection. This is They are demonstrating something that we all need. It's like, when someone fails, what do you do with them? Yeah. Jesus had, as we know, 12 apostles. His choice intrigues me. I mean, for numerous reasons. His choice of the apostles, of who he chooses. To trust intrigues me, and we know that he chooses Judas and treats him with really with great kindness and also empowers him to do, you know, he doesn't say, uh, I'll, you know, I'll, uh, I'll partner you up with John who has my heart so you don't screw this up. But he empowers them on the same level. He empowers all the other apostles. And, and evidently, Judas must do signs and wonders and miracles because when about probably a year into, uh, about two years into Jesus' ministry, a year or so before Jesus is crucified, you'll notice that Jesus begins to repeat this phrase, one of you will betray me, with more frequency as they get to the crucifixion. And the night, uh, the, we call it the night he was betrayed. I mean, we call it the, uh, the Last Supper, but the Bible calls it the night he was betrayed. Um, Jesus uh, is says to them, again, one of you betray me. This is not a new message. This is not a new message for the the guys. One of you betray me. And um, it must be, uh, there must have been some new intensity about the words. It's hard to, you know, see that when you're not actually there. But enough for Peter to turn to John and say, is it me? When that conversation didn't happen the other times, Jesus said, one of you betray me. And John turns to Jesus and asks him if it's me. He doesn't doesn't say, is it Peter? He actually says, is it me? And, And Judas immediately sees that Jesus is about to take the wine and bread. And Jesus begins to say to the disciples, it's time for us to make a covenant. This is a new covenant in my blood. And as Jesus starts to inaugurate the new covenant, Judas immediately gets up and leaves. And Jesus turns and says, hey, whatever you do, just make it quick. And the disciples, are t- they don't have any idea it's Judas. I mean, they say, oh, they thought, I think John records that, they, that the, all the disciples thought that Jesus was saying, uh, go give that offering, because he was the treasurer, and get back here quick. He didn't understand even then that Judas, I mean, Judas was so hidden that they didn't think, well, it was probably Judas. And Judas goes out and you know the story, he betrays Jesus with a kiss in the, later on in the evening. It struck me many years ago that the Judas spirit is so alive today That when Jesus says, let's make a covenant, the Judas spirit wants intimacy without covenant. It's the cohabiting spirit. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss because the Judas spirit wants intimacy but doesn't want covenant. The world has taken up this mindset. I mean, it's not like this is brand new, like, hey, there was no, no such thing as fornication before the 20th century, the 21st century. Of course there was. But people felt shame when they had sex outside of marriage. They hid it. My mother got pregnant um, before she was married, my, my mom and dad immediately, as soon as my mom's it was clear that my mom was pregnant. Immediately eloped. Immediately eloped. Nowadays, people have kids with two and three different partners. And it's all okay. It's like, there's no. not only is there no shame, there's almost a glory to it. And you ask people like, hey, you've been together. You know, we all know people have been together for years. And they got several children. Hey, why don't you guys get married? Like, it's just a piece of paper. Really? It's just a piece of paper. Why don't you sign it? I'll tell you why you don't sign it, metaphorically speaking, because that piece of paper says, I'll be with you forever. (laughs) See, in cohabiting, the difference between cohabiting and marriage is marriage is actually a death march to a life camp. Like, actually, I've come to lay my life down for you. It's it's why a woman has a hymen. It's the first sexual act is supposed to be an act of covenant. The children are to be conceived out of the blood of a covenant. But cohabiting says, I'm in this for what I can get. I'll stay here as long as you're good to me. And I actually use the fear of abandoning you to actually manipulate you to get what I want from you. I'm never gonna sign a paper that says I'll be here forever because it takes away the motivation I use to get you to do what I need you to do because I'm not in this for you. I'm in it for what I can get. This is the spirit of the age. This is the spirit of the age. And unfortunately, that same spirit has actually seeped into the church where we come with a consumer attitude. I come for what I can get. Oh, you know what? Children's church isn't as good as the Joe's down the street. We're gonna go down there. And by the way, I have no problem with excellence. My point is is that the church wasn't born in a conference. It was born in a covenant. I understand that there are places that our church, the, I'm talking about the place where we gather, the place that we, we call connected, the place where we're known, the place where we have accountability, place where we have responsibility, that place I'm talking about as a church today. I understand that there are places that need to improve. Well, I can't follow that, that leader because he's or she's, I'm like, I mean, you have to ask yourself how perfect do people have to be before you can follow? Well, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, that's amazing because he happens to be invisible, so how do we know you're following him if you're not following the people that he's put in your life? These are just things that we, we struggle with. And, but there is something that happens. I think the benefits of covenant are often missed by the and clouded by the Judas spirit. In other words, what I'm getting at is God didn't just say, have a covenant because I want you to be in this relationship thick or thin. I'm just going to punish you. Just stay here no matter what. No, God's actually wise enough to know this is how you're wired. You're wired to be with a people. And out of that connection gives you a freedom that you don't have when you violate that. It's funny to me that Adam and Eve, God said to Adam and Eve, like, you can do whatever you want. Like, there are no rules except for don't eat this one tree. <laughs> the only rule, this is the only rule, the whole garden. Like, don't eat this one tree. <laughs> they eat the one tree, as you know, that they weren't supposed to eat, and they're guilty. <laughs> and they're naked. They're like, they're, they're trying to, like, cover themselves up like we're naked. And God sees that, that they're trying to cover themselves up, and he goes, who told you you were naked? And the point I'm making is when I get out of the will of God, I end up with more rules than I had when I served God. Like the spirit of religion and what I call freedom actually puts me in a greater bondage. And I think all I had to do when I was with God is obey. (laughs) I end up with all these rules that I can't keep when I become my own God. And one of the things that happens when we're in community and connected is we get courageous. Like, I think courage is actually birthed out of knowing I'm connected. Like, it's not that I don't care about, I don't care what you think. I think the more often you say, I don't care what you think, the more you actually care what other people think. But when you know that you belong somewhere, it gives you the courage to take a stand where you know it may not be popular because you actually have a connection to people who do love you. Jesus uh, was talking about John the Baptist. John's in prison, and John sends him this kind of weird message. You know, after John proclaims Jesus is the Messiah, then he goes, "Hey, are you the one?" And Jesus makes this powerful statement: As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are, wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I tell you. And one more than a prophet. Um, I, I just wanted to pick up this one phrase. What did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? In other words, a reed shaken by the wind. Um, probably all the hunters in here have, know what that reed shaken by the wind It's It's when the wind's blowing and you're in a, you're in a field of reeds, it's that, it's that whistle. It's that voice of the reeds. And he's saying, did you go out to see someone whose whose voice was directed by the wind of people's opinions? Did you go out to see somebody whose opinion was based on the fear of the people around him? That's not the guy you went out to see. And the point I'm making here is that John had revelation but he was connected. Yes, he spoke in the wilderness, and some people might point out. But he's also, he was also the, the cousin of Jesus. Mary and, and, and Martha were connected. Mary and, and Elizabeth were connected. And there was a sense of community. John even, John, even though John was radical, he was radically connected. And his voice wasn't just somebody. The wind was not controlling what he said to people because he was connected. There's there's something about courage that comes from connection. Jesus made this comment, um, also recorded in Matthew, do not give what is holy to the dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet. And I never saw this last part. And turn and tear you to pieces. When we give revelation to people who have no value for it, they don't just hate the revelation, they hate you. There is something about having something beautiful. Let me me read it this way. There is something beautiful about sharing holy revelation with noble people who have a high value for God's insight. This is part of community. Part of community is, I got this revelation. It deepens our connection because people do have value. Listen. If I share what's holy with people who have no value for it, they don't just hate the revelation, they hate me. But there's something that connects us through revelation when I'm with people who value what God has to say. I want to talk for a few minutes how this all connects community. I want to talk about a little bit how this affects the prophetic community. Because uh, the, the last part of this message, I want to talk about a little bit about 2021 and about the challenge that we have creating a culture of risk. Unlike a covenant community that this movement has been birthed in, the Christian community often rejects people who get a prophetic word wrong, make a mistake or fail in their attempt to grow in God. The connotation is that you are not a Christian because you have failed. You're a false prophet, or a false teacher, or a false believer, and I, I just I wanted to point out that we that that Judas spirit has so seeped into the church that we actually choose who will be connected with by whether or not they succeed or fail, and we create a culture where failing where failing is so has such a high um, let's see how am I put it that that. When I fail, I am, I am destined to lose connection or be disassociated or be discommunicated, you know, discommunicated excommunicated. And I, I'm trying to say that the church has taken up this Judas spirit. You failed, therefore you are disconnected. The, the challenge is... Not that the pushback that comes from the world, because you expect the world to not value those things. The challenge and, the, and, the, and the, the trepidation I have in my heart and what's motivating this message is what I see happening in the church. You failed, and I'm not, listen, I am very connected. I, I'm, I'm good. I'm concerned about how it affects people who we've been inspiring to take a risk, to step out in faith. When they see somebody seemingly made a mistake, and they're like, you're excommunicated, you're not even a believer, you should be shamed out of the body of Christ. I, one of the, uh, I really love John Maxwell, and one of John Maxwell's quotes is, how you treat the worst determines whether or not you get the best. When someone stands up in a, in a congregation and gives a prophetic word, especially one that's obviously bad, <laughs> the challenge for leaders is actually how do I encourage the congregation to continue to do what this person did, but with the right word? Because if I shame or embarrass that person I guarantee you that will do more damage than the word gave, did, than the bad prophetic word did, because I will say to everyone, "Don't you make a mistake in this congregation, or I will treat you like this." Now, do, do people's prophetic words need to be judged? Yes, we'll talk about that in just a minute. In Second Peter chapter two, Peter talks about the last days. He said false prophets will also arise among the people, and there will also be false teachers among you who secretly induce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon himself. Did you notice that a false teacher is not someone who is a bad Bible teacher? Did you notice that he didn't say, and a false teacher is someone who doesn't get the verse right. (laughs) Somebody who misunderstood the context. That's a false teacher. Actually, a false teacher is not someone who is a bad Bible teacher, but a person who purposely is trying to deceive people, secretly trying to take them away from Christ. That's actually a false teacher. Listen to this, Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. Did you get that? He was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching, listen to this, accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. (laughs) More accurately. Meaning, even though he had accurate teaching around Jesus... There was other things that he was teaching that weren't accurate. Did you notice he didn't become a false teacher? He just became a teacher who wasn't fully accurate. And Priscilla and Aquila didn't take him aside and say, "'Dude, you're a false teacher. You need to repent for your sins. You're leading people astray.' No, they said, "'Let's teach you the word more accurately.'" How many know there was room in the early church for people to not have it right? But they were still belonged. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read this whole uh, passage, but in, in Matthew 7, verse 15, it starts there and ends at verse 27. If you want to read the whole passage, Jesus begins with, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaged wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Now, he goes on to say, you, don't, you know, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. A bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. And then he tells them this story. By the way, this is all in the context of a false prophet because he's thinking the same thing you're thinking. Well, what is the fruit? And, you, and we'll all, we all should notice that he didn't say, you'll know them because they'll get the prophetic words wrong. No, it's a heart thing. And he, and he tells them this story. He says, he said, uh, there's someone who'll come to me and say, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And he says, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Listen to this last part of this, because it's this all part of the false prophet part, right? You man of lawlessness. And then you go, okay, what's it mean to be lawless? Because evidently the fruit of lawlessness is how do you know a false prophet? By the fact that they're lawless. Not that their prophetic words are right or wrong. How many know Acts 16, there's a girl following Paul and Silas. I think it's Paul and Silas. And she's saying, these are great men of God. These are great men of God. And she actually has a spirit of divination. Paul cast the evil spirit out of her. And how many understand? She had the right word. Completely wrong spirit. The the people who were demon-possessed in Jesus' day, commonly the spirit, the evil spirit would go, you're the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And he'd say, Shut up and I don't tell anybody. How many of you know? Evil spirit telling the truth. But Jesus goes on to say, everyone who hears these words of mine is and does not act on them. This is the chapter. This is this is Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets. How do I know them? Their fruit. What's their fruit? They're lawless. How do I know if they're lawless? Well, man, one man built, built a house on a sand, another man man built a house on a rock. What's that have to do with false prophets? Well, the one that built his house in the sand is the man who heard the word but didn't do it. The man who built his house on a rock is the man who heard the word and did it. What does lawless mean? You didn't obey. I listened, I could repeat it, but I didn't do it. And Jesus said, that's how you'll know they're false prophets. They don't actually obey. Has little to do with whether or not they get the prophetic words right or wrong. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is talking to a very prophetic community, probably the most prophetic community, at least that we have any history of in the Bible. And he's kind of getting them, you can imagine, they're really excited about the gifts, but it's kind of, it's kind of a big old stew that doesn't really lead to anything. And so he's trying to like give some order to their public services. And he says to them, let two or three prophets speak. Okay, then let the others pass judgment. The connotation is right now. So the prophet's going to get up and speak, and there's going to be another prophet speak, and there's going to be another prophet speak. It doesn't have to just be three, but the point is is that there's there's some sense of order. And then there's going to be a group of prophetic people, or maybe it's not even the prophet who speaks. It could be because the context is about prophecy and not about prophets. But then when it's, when it's all said and done, Paul's like, then there ought to be some judgment. The judgment isn't judging the person like it was in the Old Covenant. It's judging the prophecies. And the connotation isn't, you got it wrong. The connotation is, hey, that prophecy you gave, I, I don't know if you got some of you in there. And they were. And how do you judge a prophecy when prophecy is always about the future? Did you notice that? Because prophecy is foretelling and foretelling. How do you know if it's a prophecy, if it's about the future, and you're supposed to judge it immediately? Because what you're judging is source. God can't lie. So when we determine that the source is the Holy Spirit and not the human spirit or the evil spirit, then we know that prophecy is going to come to pass in its time because the source is a person who cannot lie. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 19, he writes, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 19, says, Do not quench the spirit, do not not despise prophetic utterances, examine everything carefully, and then hold fast to that which is good. This is really, really clear. He says, do not despise, no, I'm sorry, I think it starts, do not quench the spirit. Did you notice that he ties quenching the spirit with despising prophetic utterances? He actually says, you've actually shut down the Holy Spirit because you've despised prophetic utterances. Why would you despise prophetic utterances in the early church? I mean, you didn't have the theology we have today. I would say it's because a lot of prophetic ministry probably didn't, probably wasn't accurate. As a matter of fact, you'll notice that Paul says, don't despise prophetic utterances, but you should examine it carefully and hold fast to the part that's good. The point is there that they were judging prophecies for content and connection to God. And they were told, like just if, in our terms, we'd say, eat the meat and throw out the bones. But they weren't judging the giver of the prophecy. They were actually judging the prophecy. Paul didn't say, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophetic utterances. If anyone gives, is giving bad words, just excommunicate them. Let's solve the problem right here. No, he's like, listen, we need to teach people that they need, they actually that ministry needs to happen inside community, and community is supposed to give you feedback. So I... I I went to my pastor and I gave him a word and he didn't think it was the Lord and I left the church. Dude, I don't even know, like what coach would have you on their team? what what employer would let you work for them if you had that attitude and how much more when you come into a covenant community where we're connected by the blood of Jesus should you stand in there maybe your pastor wasn't right maybe he he misjudged the word but the point is it's in staying connected that we grow and learn the R&D isn't just for the person who gave the word it's also for the person the people judging the words it's like this is how we learn we stay connected the people who are most critical of others are people who never do anything. I want to read you an excerpt. It's probably three minutes long. Out of the book I just wrote, Spiritual Intelligence, Jesus put his disciples in a boat and sent them to the other side. Later on, he went trotting on the water in the midst of a bad storm. The guys saw him and thought he was a ghost and pretty much freaked out. Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter suddenly had this brilliant idea. He yells, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. (laughs) You have to admit the guy's got guts. Yet on the surface, Peter doesn't seem to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. I mean, if a ghost can talk to you from the water, certainly he can say, come. Yet Peter possesses a special kind of spiritual intelligence that's rooted in faith and inspired by courage. The rest of the story is pretty powerful. Jesus shouted, come. And Peter, hearing the command above the howling wind and crashing seas, gets out of the boat and began to walk on the water. I love that Peter refuses to be satisfied with spiritual principles that have no practical application. Instead, he gets out of the dang boat while 11 theologians watch from the deck. This is it for me, the main point of the book. The thing that drives the religious world nuts, that someone actually tried. He actually got out out on the water and attempted to walk on the sea. What good is spiritual intelligence if it has no purpose? I've observed that the rat, rat, radical faith is so convicting to doubters, the lukewarm and the half-hearted, and the religious, who have rescripted the Bible to require them to live only in the realm of reason. The truth is, you either have to be—the truth is, you either have to be the next one out of the boat, or find some spiritual excuse to relieve your cowardly, cowardliness. Peter's first water walk reminds me of the story of the Wright brothers. Who were pastor's kids? On December 17th, 1903, Orville Wright, after crashing five other planes, made the first successful plane flight in the history of the world. Only 11 people were present that day to witness that historic flight because Orville and his brother Wilbur had failed so many times. His plane flew just 12 seconds at a place called Kill Devil Hills. Like the Wright brothers' maiden flight, Peter's water walk didn't last long. There's a biblical record, here's the biblical record of the rest of the story. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began sinking and cried out, said, the Lord, save me. Immediately, the Lord stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? If Peter had little faith, I'm not sure what level of faith the 11 world changers had who were watching from the deck. I'd like to point out also that Peter did not drown. He walked back to the boat holding hands with Jesus. It's important that we don't miss the main message of this story. Faith caused Peter to tap into the third heaven, superior law of, of the Spirit. However brief the moment was, the guy accomplished a physical in, physically impossible feat by having faith in God, which allowed him to experience the kingdom who came, that came near him. I mean, the guy actually walked on the water, demonstrating that faith is the on-ramp to experiencing a superior ecosystem, manifest over an inferior ecosystem. We can't grow our faith on the deck of a ship. We can watch other water walkers hear their stories and read their books but ultimately the only way we are going to grow our water walking faith is to get out of the dang boat. What's the point of this message? I believe that God would have us deepen our connection. For two months, several times a week, I have been having dreams. The same dream, different story, but the same dream. And the dream is I call someone, but I can't get a hold of them. Or my phone won't dial or I can't find my phone. It's been going on for three months, had it twice this week. And this week, I I woke with this feeling like, I can't get a hold of Kathy. I keep trying to call her, but the phone won't go through. The night before that, it was trying to call Bill. It's random people. And I woke up a few days ago, and I said, what the heck is going on? And the Lord said, my people are disconnected. They're not listening to one another. And I want to say that this doesn't sound powerful in the sense that it's super revelatory, but I believe that this is a year of connection. That God wants to reestablish covenant, the foundation that grew this movement. That we have to get past, obviously, offenses, but fellowship is a sacrifice that goes beyond convenience. And it's that connection that gave birth, that gave birth to the risk factor. And sometimes I feel like our movement's trying to have the risk factor, but doesn't have the connection. I believe that the Lord is shifting our very movement. I believe that 2021 is gonna bring spirit-led strategies that rock the world and begin the, the process of making crooked places straight that sound wisdom and brilliance will be the story of the day, and the church will emerge like Joseph out of prison, Daniel from the POW camp, and like Esther, we'll build covenant relationships with royalty. But I believe all of that is only gonna happen if we'll rebuild covenant. Because I believe it's the rebuilding of the covenant that is the foundation for the connection we need to take the risk. Otherwise, we will find ourselves being reeds shaken by the wind telling people what they want to hear, being motivated by what they tell us on social pages, fearing the crowd. I, I don't know if you know this, but we're in the record searchlight again this week, Les. This five things or seven things that Bethel did wrong this week uh, this year. And it's like, the, it, I don't know if you notice this, but the enemy has given up trying to intimidate us and now they're trying to shame us. And I'm not just talking about Bethel, He's trying to shame us into silence. And shame is the fear, get this, this is the final part of the message. Shame is the fear, I'm gonna be disconnected. I'm gonna be excommunicated. I'm going to be rejected. I won't won't scare you into being quiet. I will shame you into disconnection. I don't know what that does for you, but I have a family. I am connected. So that's not gonna work for me because I'm living out of covenant. And shame, and that guards me from shame when I stay connected. And what that does to me, it makes me more. <laughs> the more you try to shame me, the more I can see through that. And I'm like, now I am going to be vigilant because whatever that is that you're trying to scare me into, I know there's a treasure on the other side. And you've just validated that I scare you. And I believe that there is a war over who will shape culture. And it looks like it's a people war, but it has very little to do with people. I want to read you this last line. We have, emerged, we have emerged to a culture. Well, first of all, I said we're going to emerge like a caterpillar into a butterfly. And we have emerged to a culture war, cultural war that is manifest in the visible world. But is raging in the spirit realm and is out to destroy humanity. What was meant to destroy us actually has awakened us with weapons of warfare. Why don't you stand a minute pray for you? Some of you are watching this. And you've gotten angry with your leaders. I don't even have to prophesy this because you write to me our pastors didn't open their cowards. Really easy to have opinions about things that you have no responsibility for. Maybe they were afraid. So if they were afraid, should they be excommunicated? Do they not qualify any longer? You've never done anything out of fear. What I'm getting at is this, is I believe that the Lord wants you to make a new connection. He wants you to do what my friends at that business did and said, I'm staying connected even if you won't stay connected with me. And I want to just pray that God would give us a covenant heart, not a Judas heart, but a covenant heart that says, this is hard, but I'm staying in this. This is hard, but I'm staying connected. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you actually laid down your life for my sin, but also you taught me. This is how you get life. You lay down yours. You pick up other people's, and that's how you're going to find great grace in your life. Lord, I pray that we would not be of the people who live selfishly, moving from place to place just so we can get what we want, but that we would demonstrate the love of Jesus in that we take up our cross and daily lay down our lives so that other people could have life. And Lord, I bless everyone that's watching. I pray that there be a new sense of connection in love. And I pray that that love... That would cause them to be patient. That love would cause them to be connected. That love would cause them to not be jealous and so on and so forth. That they would grow so much in love for their families, for their friends, for their leaders, for their, for their spiritual connections. That love would outlast every other thing that is trying to separate them. And I bless people who are cursing us, Lord. I bless them. I bless that newspaper reporter that insists on writing negative, negative stuff about us, about me. Lord, I just bless him. I pray, God, you would actually encounter him and show him your love. And I bless everyone who's watching this message in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I hope you enjoyed that message. You know that this podcast exists to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and develop you in the art of thinking like God. I want you to experience what it means to truly think like God and have the mind of Christ. So just a quick reminder that one of the best ways to do this is to read my book, Spiritual Intelligence, which is available for purchase everywhere you love to buy books. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to share your thoughts with me.